Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, the mysterious 1923 death of dancer Fritzy Mann. Was it an accident, suicide, or murder? At first, the the scene... The, the the police didn't know what they had. The coroner didn't know. It was kind of a strange scene because it looked like she had been posed possibly, you know, uh, her, her arms and hands were kind of folded across her chest. Although the different witnesses varied on that, her feet were close together and she was, she was, uh, dressed only in a, a pink silk teddy, stockings, and pumps. And that was it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. So November 1st marked the six-year anniversary of this show. It was on that date in 2015. The first episode, Gangsters in 1930s Minnesota, was released. I remember checking my numbers, my download numbers, that first week, and um, I had 10. And I remember trying to figure out which of my friends and family members had listened to the show, (laughs) Uh, counting on my fingers. I I don't think I ever imagined I'd still be doing this six years later, but it's just as fun as it's ever been. And I so appreciate you for continuing to encourage me uh, and to support me with your valuable time. Thank you so much. So my question this week comes from Claire, a patron on Patreon. She asks, what true crime still keeps you awake at night? Very interesting question. Thank you, Claire. Uh, Well, there have been two books that stand out for me. I'm sure there are more, but these are forefront in my mind. Two books that were especially hard to read, not because they weren't well written, but because of the subject matter, of course. Those books were Butterfly in the Rain, 
1927 abduction and murder of Marion Parker by James Niebauer, and Little Shoes, the sensational Depression-era murders that became my family's secret with Pamela Everett. That second one was about the Babes of Inglewood murders. All right, let's get to today's episode, and it is a good one. I am so pleased to have as my guest today James A. Stewart. He spent 25 years active duty with the U.S. Navy. He has an MFA in creative writing from UC Riverside, and he is here to talk about his first book, just recently published, called Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage, A True Story of Murder in San Diego's Jazz Age. Welcome and congratulations on your first book. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, Glad to have you. So how did you come to pick this story as the subject of your first book? Yeah, well, in, uh, I guess it was 2012, I was about to start the MFA program at uh, UC Riverside. It's uh, an MFA program in creative writing, and I needed a thesis topic. So (laughs) that's how I came to uh, be looking for a story. And I knew I wanted to write about crime. I always have. And I knew that I wanted it to be a historical kind of crime because those are my favorite true crime kind of stories, um, you know, about the old crimes, uh, you know, anything before World War II, I guess you could say. Um, so I started looking around. I live in San Diego, so I knew that the research for this would be extensive. And instead of having to fly somewhere to do research and poke through archives and whatnot, I, I thought that uh, finding a local story would be the best. And so I started looking around. I started asking people and a couple of pe- people mentioned the Fritzy Mann story from 1923. And I'd never heard of it, but it turns out that a local author and uh, historian in San Diego had published a short piece uh, the year before, I think 2011, about this case. And therefore, people, a lot of people I talked to had heard from it. When I asked at the uh, San Diego History Center, you know, about the case, the young woman there said, oh, you mean San Diego's Black Dahlia case? <laughs> so that, that immediately got me interested in the story, uh, you know. So uh, I started poking around, found out that it was a very fascinating story. And and although I, had, I did look at some other crimes from the 20s and uh, before, actually, uh, I didn't find any that was nearly as fascinating to me as this case. And also the fact that this case went to trial meant that I hope to be able to find trial transcripts and court records, which which I was. And also the fact that it had been widely covered in the uh, at the time. And so there were hundreds of newspaper articles about it uh, across the country eventually. So it was a national uh, case at the time. So so that gave me uh, enough material, I thought, to work with and uh, managed to do it. Yeah, a- absolutely. So Fritzy Mann, the central character in this story, 
I'd love it if you could talk a bit about her background, including how she became a dancer. Yeah, she, uh, Fritzi, her name, her actual name was Frida. Frida Mann came from an immigrant Jewish family. Uh, her father was uh, from a small town in Poland. Her mother was from a small town in Hungary. Uh, both of those towns are now in what's what's now the Ukraine. Um, but they ended up in uh, Sarajevo, Bosnia, and settled there. And that's where all three of the man's children were born. The oldest was her brother, William, and he was about four years older than Fritzi. And then her older sister was uh, about two years older than her. And then and then came Fritzi. She was born in 1902. So in 1910, they immigrated to the U.S., took a ship over like people did then, and uh, were met on the pier in New York, went through Ellis Island and all that, and met on the pier by uh, Fritzie's mother. Her name was Amelia. Uh, her brother had settled in Nashville, Tennessee previously, and some of the other family were there. And so he met them on the pier and they stayed briefly with him in uh, Nashville. And then they moved on to Denver, Colorado. And the reason they moved there was that her father, Esor, uh, had tuberculosis, which was the great scourge in, uh, of that time. Um, but we forget about those things these days, but when you, you look back and do some research, you find out what, how bad tuberculosis or consumption, as they called it back then, was. And he was already suffering from the disease, but uh, they uh, settled in Denver because it was known at the time as the World Sanitarium, because high altitude, dry air was thought to be good for tuberculosis patients. And they also had two sanitariums there specifically for Jewish consumptives. So that's why they ended up in Denver. Uh, her father died in 1920 from the tuberculosis. And then the following year in 21, her mother moved the family to San Diego. Uh, as far as dancing, she began dancing as far as I was able to determine. Uh, first uh, performance I could find was when she was 13. There was like a, a school production of some sort. And then sometime after that, during her teen years, she trained with a, a woman named Domina Marini, who at the time was uh, somewhat known. She had toured with uh, Anna Pavlova, the great Russian ballerina that most people have heard of even to this day. Uh, so she was an understudy to Pavlova and she traveled around with her for about five years. And uh, Marini ended up uh, settling in Denver around 1915. And at some point around then or soon after that, Fritzy started uh, training with her, as did her sister, Helen. Uh, they both uh trained in dance. Now she taught both ballet as well as interpretive dancing, which was a really big deal uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. It's basically forgotten now, as far as I can tell. 
Um, but it was a, it was a really popular form of dance then. And, uh, and that was primarily what Fritzi uh, concentrated on was this interpretive dancing more popular than ballet, but the performers also wanted to be taken seriously more so than say vaudeville performers. So that was kind of the idea behind the interpretive dancing. And, and then once they moved to San Diego in 1921, uh, she started dancing right away. Apparently, she took a letter of uh, introduction from uh, her mentor, uh, Marini, in uh, to San Diego, and it helped her get her first performance, which was about six weeks after they arrived in San Diego. And it was at one of the biggest theaters in town called The Colonial. And it had like a 1,400 seat capacity and it was sold out during Fritzi's performances, which took place exactly one year before her death in uh, January. And then she continued on dancing around San Diego after that. And there was that one performance, right, where she was hoisted up on wires with butterfly wings. and yeah. She uh, she performed with uh, her mentor there and some of the shows that she put on locally in Denver. And there was one, it was a big one uh, that was like uh, in the fairgrounds or something in the head, but they made this huge stage and uh, Marini was the star of the, of the show and she choreographed it and she had all of her students performing with her, uh, with Fritzi and Helen were both you know, in that production and they had like a main production and then they had a, a second performance that involved a butterfly dance, as they called it in those days. Fritzi was one of four of the girls who did the, the butterfly dance and apparently they suspended them on wires and they had these really huge butterfly wings or things made to look like butterfly wings and they did a dance with this and it kind of apparently stuck with her because after her death, some of the, the San Diego papers referred to her occasionally as the butterfly girl or the butterfly dancer. And that was the only instance that I could find in which she did a butterfly dance. So it must have come from that Denver performance. Right. So Fritzi, as you've said, once she arrives in California, she continues to work, she's in demand, and she's considered a really talented dancer. Is yes, it's, uh, as far as I could tell, that that is true. She did get performances throughout 1922, almost up until the end of, of 22. But some of them were were large performances, like that one at the Colonial. And later on, she did a dance uh, at Balboa Park that was uh, for a Shriners convention, which was a hugely attended uh, thing. And she was one of the dancers there. And uh, but she also did lots of real small venues. You know, she uh, one of the more notable ones was at a what they called a roadhouse or a cafe or sometimes a dance hall. It was called The Barn, and it was located out east of San Diego, an area called Grossmont, which back then was 
almost completely rural. In fact, just re- just a few years before that, they had been filming westerns there because it was so such a rugged and uh, area and so rural. But it was like right on the side of the highway, and you know, apparently it was fairly popular. And Fritzy did a series of dances at that place, so that was you know another one. And she did a bunch of other things, but they were some of them were big, some of them were just real small. Apparently, she just took the work wherever she could get it. And uh, she was helping to pay for her sister's tuberculosis was one reason why she was trying to work whenever she could. Because it turns out they they had moved to San Diego in the first place because her mother had heard that San Diego with its, you know, desert ocean air uh, was also good for consumptives. And so by this time, Helen, uh, Fritzi's sister, was suffering from that disease as well. So that was why they actually moved to San Diego. And Fritzi was trying to help support her. The right. Treatment. So it was on January 14th, 1923, right, that Fritzi talked for the last time with her mother, Amelia. Right. Yeah, she had been in staying in L.A. for almost two months before her death, about midnight, November of 1922, until one week before her death, she returned to San Diego. And her mother noticed right away that she was acting very strangely, uh, that something was going on. She didn't know what, but she knew something was going on. Fritzie had actually ridden overnight on the train from Long Beach wearing a friend's fancy dress outfit. It was a real flapper kind of outfit, very fancy, expensive. And she wore that overnight on the train. So when she got home, she was wearing this outrageous party party dress, you know, this long brown dress with uh, copper beads, rows of copper beads and a, a fancy hat with a ostrich feather in it and, you know, things like that. And it, her mother couldn't understand why she had ridden overnight on the train in that outfit. And that was kind of the first thing that made her think, well, what's going on? You know, Chrissy said that she needed that outfit for a house party the following Sunday, what turned out to be the night of her death. And she kept referring to this house party in Del Mar, which is a a then very small on the coast, uh, I don't know, 15 or 19 miles, somewhere like that, uh, north of San Diego on the coast. It's it's now a really expensive uh, resort kind of place. But she wouldn't be specific. She didn't say where it was going to be or whose house she was going to be staying at overnight. And she also said that a man from Los Angeles was going to take her to this party. He was coming down from Los Angeles. She was going to meet him and he was going to take her to this party. And she refused to tell her mother the man's name, something she had apparently never done before, according to her mother. So that was a, all of this was very strange to her mother. So she knew something was going on. And so she tried to get Fritzy to stay home and not go to this party because she at least later claimed to have had a premonition and she knew something was up. Whatever she was doing probably was something, uh, that her mother was worried about anyway. And uh, so she she actually walked with her a few blocks to the streetcar station 
And Fritzy the whole time tell her, to, don't worry, don't worry. It's a quiet place. You know, everything's fine. I'll let you guys know tomorrow. If I'm not back, I'll let you know tomorrow. And then she left and headed to downtown San Diego to meet this man. At least that's what she told her mom. So Fritzy Mann's body was discovered the next morning. Can you talk about the circumstances surrounding the discovery? Where was she found? Who found her? A, um, A family had been coming down from the LA, um, the LA area, just on a road trip, a pleasure trip. And they were on the coast highway there and coming down from Del Mar. And just south of Del Mar is Torrey Pines Beach. Um, they stopped there for just like a picnic lunch to have sandwiches or something. And little boy was nine years old, uh, went down the embankment down on the beach. And he came running back up a couple of minutes later telling his father that he had found a boy on the beach. It turned out it wasn't a boy. It was uh, Fritzy. But um, at first, the, the, the scene, the, the, the police didn't know what they had. The coroner didn't know. It was kind of a strange scene because it looked like she had been posed, possibly. You know, uh, her, her arms and hands were kind of folded across her chest, although the different witnesses varied on that. Her feet were close together, and she was she was uh, dressed only in a a pink silk teddy stockings and pumps, and that was it. Um, some of her belongings had been strewn about. Her party dress that she had borrowed from her friend was found in the sand not far away, and uh, and then about five hundred yards to the south. The handbag that she had left home uh, carrying and also a vanity case were found at the bottom of the embankment as if somebody had tossed them out of a moving car, or at least from the top of the embankment. That's what it appeared to the police anyway. And the other thing was is that Fritzy did not have a car. So somebody brought her there. However she died, somebody brought her there. So at least one other person knew something about what this was. But, you know, they kept going back and forth. Was it a suicide? Had she meant to drown herself? There were things that argued for and against this. uh, And some of these came out later. Was it murder? You know, she also had like a a bruise over one eye uh, that could have been something, you know, maybe somebody hit her, knocked her out and took her out into the surf, you know, to drown her. I mean, that was one of the speculations. Or could it have been accidental? You know, that seemed the least likely. It was in January. And even in San Diego, you know, at night in January was chilly. And uh, it would have been really cold and miserable trying to go for a midnight swim or something. So they discounted accidental pretty quickly. Uh, But then, you know, the the real argument for the case was, was it murder? Was it suicide? Was what it came down to. And that was argued up to the end of the case and beyond, you know, the, the manner of death. But they started getting some clues when they did the autopsy that evening. So. Stand by. We will be back momentarily. Hello all, Eric here. 
so you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So, eating better is easy with Factor's scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I wanna teach you everything you need to know about US history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. And we have returned. 
Yeah, you, you do mention in your book that it would have been a strange place to commit suicide. I mean, she, she would likely had to have walked a number of miles to this location, um, and her shoes on examination were not scuffed or worn, right? Right. Yeah. And you also point out that not a lot of people just walk into an ocean and drown themselves. That's not a typical way people take their own lives, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, so that was one of the things that was, as far as the police chief was concerned, and and ultimately the coroner and the, the inquest was that, uh, or after the inquest, was that there were enough things there that it looked like homicide more more than suicide as far as the authorities were concerned. Uh, but unfortunately, when they took her body to uh, off the beach a few hours after it was uh, found, and they, the coroner delivered it to a local funeral parlor, which was the practice then. They didn't have – he didn't have his own medical examiner facilities – he wasn't even a medical man. He was a former newspaper guy who had been elected as coroner. But he had a, an autopsy surgeon that did autopsies, and and he did them in whatever funeral parlor morgue that the uh, coroner delivered them to. And so when he showed up there, apparently the funeral director didn't get the word that an autopsy was required because when – the doctor walked in there to do the autopsy. He had already drained most of her blood from her body. And so the autopsy was botched from that perspective. Uh, he did determine that two, two major things he determined. One is that she did, in fact, drown. And two, that she was four months pregnant, four to four and a half months pregnant. And obviously, at the time, a single woman being pregnant is was a was a really big scandal and uh so that obviously figured in as far as the police were concerned whether this was suicide or murder it would be a motive for either one possibly more so then than now uh much more so so um so anyway those were the two big things that came out of it and uh the police went from there right and if she was four and a half months pregnant, it makes perfect sense that investigators would count back to the point, to the approximate point when the baby was conceived in an attempt to figure out who she might have been dating or seeing during that time. Yes, and that's exactly what they did. They they figured, you know, the autopsy surgeon figured it was Around the beginning of September, you know, from the first first half of September when the baby had been conceived. And so they looked back and Fritzy had dated a number of different people, but two, two men emerged almost right away. The first one was when her mother went to see her body in the morgue. Her brother had actually identified her first and then her mother came down and she immediately started screaming this man's name. Uh, his name was Rogers Clark. And she did not like Rogers Clark, her mother. Um, so she immediately thought that he was the father of her baby. He had probably deceived her, you know, got her pregnant. And she didn't like the guy anyway. 
And uh, so he was, you know, really kind of the first suspect the police started looking into, at least as a person of interest. And then that same afternoon, we're talking Tuesday now, uh, another guy, a doctor who worked at the VA hospital named Louis Jacobs, walked into the chief of police office with a friend and said, I, I, I know the dead girl and I want to help uh, figure out the mystery of what happened to her. So he became suspicious right away to the police chief because of some screwy answers that he gave to some pretty simple questions and and some other things. But so the, the, the chief really had two major suspects almost right away, the first day of the investigation. And in the meantime, they were working under the theory that somebody might have taken her to that isolated place and thrown her off the cliff. And in this theory, the perpetrators would likely have passed through a nearby town. So police kind of start scouring the highway, trying to find clues in places a possible killer might have stopped. Exactly right. There were there were two reasons, really, that they started looking along the coast there. One, obviously, her body was found there, but she was also supposedly attending a house party in, in Del Mar, which is just to the north of, of where her body was found on Torrey Pines Beach. And then to the south of there, eight or nine miles, is the at the time, a small village called La Jolla, which is now like a, a uh, really well-known place with some of the highest property values in the country. But back then, it was just a village, really. And uh, so they started canvassing all of the places, you know, since they couldn't figure out where any house party had been. They started looking at hotels and beach cottages and things of that sort, resorts and because uh, tourism was really getting started then. And so they started looking at all these places, just going around asking questions. And and one policeman stopped at this place called the Blue Sea Cottages, just south of the La Jolla Village, in a place that was just starting to be developed. Uh, but these they were like 27 cottages. They were very rustic. They were right over uh, near the beach there which uh, the beach is called Wind and Sea Beach, and it's very well known now. Became known later in the 50s for as a surfing hotspot. But at the time, it was, you know, it was people would come there to stay in cottages such as the Blue Sea Cottage and, you know, on vacation, uh, holiday or whatever. But this was in the winter, so they didn't have as, you know, all that many tourists. They probably had some, but most of the cottages were not occupied at this time. And the policeman who went there and he asked the uh, man who managed the place, he spoke to him and his wife, they, they ran the place together. You know, did you have anybody check in? Did you have a young woman check in possibly with a man, you know, Sunday evening, which is when they figured this would have happened. And he said, yes, there was this couple. They called themselves Mr. and Mrs. Johnson from L.A., which turned out to be an assumed name. Uh, they determined, uh, one, the manager is a guy named Kern. He identified Fritzy's body as the woman he had seen in the car that night. 
And two, they found some of her articles, uh, things like a barrette and a, um, bobby pins and things like that that her mother identified as belonging to her. So it was clear that Fritzy had been in that cottage that that evening. Uh, you know, they gave a description of the man, uh, which was a fairly generic kind of, you know, average height, uh, slight, you know, like 150 pounds, five foot nine, something like that, and seemed nervous. And, you know, he gave a, a description. Um, but this really was the next big mystery in the case. Who was this mysterious Mr. Johnson? You know, and the papers really kind of played that up. Uh, the mysterious Mr. Johnson. And really that was what was the next phase of the uh, investigation was to try to figure out who this was and why, what he had to do with Fritzy's death, if anything. Right. One of the things that this mysterious character asked for, which would become important later, was a cottage specifically with running water. And also a little odd was that he told them that he wanted to stay between one and three nights. He wasn't exactly sure. That's right. And uh, <clears throat> this is just based on what he told the uh, the manager there, but he did, in fact, get one that had a, a tub in it with running water, which they all didn't have at that time. And uh, it, it was it became clear based on the manager's testimony and his statements that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, you know, uh, had stayed there very briefly that evening. They didn't even stay overnight. They were gone the next morning. In fact, he said their car was gone. I don't remember the time, but it was you now by midnight or something when he out, went out to make his rounds. Their car was already gone and the place was dark. So they were only there a period of a few hours at the most, two to three hours tops. So... And it looked like the place had just barely been used. You know, the, the bed sheet had been pulled back and it looked like somebody maybe had been sitting or laying on the bed, but not sleeping there. And the uh, tub had some water left in it and there were some wet towels and things like that. So they had been there. They had used it in some fashion. Police had no clue at the beginning what that might be. And a spot of blood was found on a bed sheet. Right. That's correct. There was a just a small, uh, you know, like the the woman who cleaned the cottage said that it was the size of her thumbnail. So it was a very small blood spot, and she didn't think anything of it, you know, at the time. And uh, did it have anything to do with Fritzy's death? Well, I don't know. She drowned. That was pretty clear that she had drowned. So would you know? But then again, maybe something else had happened there first, and. Who knows? But uh, it was looked at, you know, with suspicion. So, again, as you've said, police were focused on two men, Rogers Clark and Dr. Jacobs. Um, Jacobs comes in voluntarily, uh, very quickly, uh, but Clark was different. Hard to find, hard to catch. Yeah, he actually, at the time, although he had been in San Diego... Uh, on his way back from a, a, a trip with this little film company they worked for. They were down in uh, Mexico, uh, Ensenada, Mexico, uh, putting together a little educational film or something for the Mexican government, apparently. 
and they were on their way back and they stayed over. In fact, the night that uh, Fritzy went missing, he was in San Diego and, uh, but he lived in LA. So they, the police were suspicious of him, not only because of his, of her mother's adamance that (laughs) it was, it was, it was him because he didn't contact the police. You know, it was all over the newspapers in both San Diego and LA and they didn't find him until Thursday, you know, several days after her body was discovered on, on Monday. So, and it was all over the papers on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And when they finally located him in LA, he was, looked like he was getting ready to flee. Uh, he was, had plans to travel back to New York where he was from, supposedly. He had just cashed a couple of large checks uh, he was a, a, a wealthy guy, apparently, and uh, he had a real fancy car uh, called a Marmon, which was supposedly one of the fastest sports cars around at the time. It could do like 60 or 80 miles an hour, which was top speed back then. <laughs> and uh, it was a big, fancy, expensive car. And when the LAPD detectives found him, they looked in his car and they found that the the gauges on the dashboard, some of them had been smashed. And then they also found blood on the back seat. And it looked like somebody had tried to clean up and clean it up and hadn't done all that great of a job. So they had immediate reason to be suspicious about Rogers Clark. And he admitted that he had dated Fritzy for a short time in the, you know, the previous fall. So could he have been the father? Yes. Based on his own statements. But he gave alibi that night in San Diego, the 14th. He was took a, a young lady, in fact, uh, Fritzy's age, I think she was 20. He was about 37 and uh, took her out to dinner at the restaurant called the, the Golden Lion, which was a popular place. And um, she backed up his story. But her f- stepfather, who was kind of a, a well-known guy around town, he was kind of a town father. And I think he ended up getting elected to the city government in some capacity later on. But he uh, he did not like Clark either. <laughs> you know, like the uh, parents of, of the young women that Clark dated tended not to like him because they just saw him as a kind of a playboy, you know. And he looked like, you know, he was handsome. He was tall. He was like six foot three, which was even more rare back then, you know, so he was very tall and his fancy car. And But her father basically didn't back up his alibi. He said he had been there until, you know, well after midnight, one o'clock or something. And, uh, but he said, no, I didn't, he wasn't there after like nine or 10 o'clock. And he was telling the papers that, no, I didn't see him after that. I have no idea where he was. And he made it very clear that he didn't like Clark. And that possibly colored some of his statements. But um, later on, they were, he was able to establish a, an alibi, Clark. Although the, the police chief actually, when he was first caught, had gone down to L.A. and uh, interrogated him for hours and then brought him back to San Diego the next morning for further you know, interrogation and investigation. But uh, he was able to ultimately establish an alibi and and was released. So being an unwed mother in 1923, 
you, you point out in your book, was scandalous. And an obvious motive, if this was indeed a murder, was that the father-to-be, whoever he was, did not want to be a father. Oh, absolutely. That was definitely the direction, right, that, that investigators were going with things. Right. And like, and like I said, it was a common uh, uh, motive uh, for, for murder and suicide because a woman in that position really had no good options unless the man agreed to marry her. See, that was kind of what the moral code was then. You know, a woman was never supposed to submit to a man's advances until they were married. I mean, that was her obligation, supposedly. And it was a disproportionate, you know, burden placed on women at the time to prevent unwanted pregnancies. But if it did happen, then the man's obligation was to marry her, obviously. So, uh, but if he didn't, she really didn't have any recourse. You know, she might try to get him charged with something like, uh, you know, seduction under uh, promise of marriage was a was a common thing there. And it was actually a charge that men got charged with sometimes. But uh, it, it was a common motive. And it turns out they had reason to the cops had reason to be more suspicious about Dr. Jacobs because by his own statements, he said that the Friday night before she went missing was the last time he was with her, and she had told him about her pregnancy and asked him to do an illegal operation on her. This is according to him now. and uh, But he didn't do it, and he refused to do that, and he said he wasn't the father, and they were just good chums, and uh, as they call their friends back then, and you know, he looked suspicious and he had also dated her for off and on and, and and especially around the time she got pregnant. So he very well could have been the father. And uh, but at the time he was claiming he didn't. He didn't. And when he didn't answer some of the uh, police chief's questions, you know, in what the chief thought was a logical answer, he uh, he had him arrested. In fact, he and Clark were both arrested on Thursday at around the same time by coincidence, you know, after the chief and some of his detectives and the coroner interrogated Jacobs, trying to get him to confess and, and whatnot. And he wouldn't, and he gave strange answers again. And uh, the chief couldn't believe it because he had, by this time he had gotten hold of some correspondence between Fritzy and Dr. Jacobs pretty much throughout the time she was staying up in L.A. for the two months before her death. And he admitted that he had offered to give her $100, right? Right. Uh, basically half the cost of an abortion. Right. He was, uh, he, he, he admitted that he gave her money more than once, but he said it was just to help her out. She was in a hard spot. She was a friend. They were both Jewish. And he said that that was one reason why he was uh, sympathetic towards her. This is what he said. So, but the chief didn't buy it because uh, there were plenty of indications in the correspondence. It was telegrams and letters. It was a whole bunch of them uh, that they actually found in her friend's house in Long Beach, which she left in her suitcase when she had returned to San Diego the week before her death. 
And uh, they found plenty of indications in there that what Jacobs and Fritzy had was more than a, a friendship. So they, clearly they had been romantic and the chief had every reason to believe that he was the father and had refused to marry her. And that correspondence early on had actually been stolen, right? <laughs> By a reporter. Yeah, different time. This was uh, one reporter or two, depending upon which uh, version. You, know, you had to take the news back then with a grain of salt because this was the uh, at the height of yellow journalism. So newspapers hyped cases, especially like this, crime cases, a pretty young woman found scantily clad on the beach, you know, that kind of case. And then there's the, uh, you know, the aspect of the scandal because she was pregnant. Uh, all of these things made it a case that blew up immediately in the press. And reporters following, you know, the, the police on, I guess it was on Wednesday, two days after her body was found, uh, the police went to talk to Bernice Edwards, which was Fritzy's good friend who lived in Long Beach and with whom she had stayed a couple of times during her stay in L.A. And the reporters maybe even got there first because they confiscated supposedly five pieces of this correspondence, uh, letters, I believe, including a letter that was from Fritzy to Bernice two days before she died, the last letter she ever wrote. And uh, so it was really big evidence in the case. And these reporters were from the Hearst, uh, William Randolph Hearst newspaper, the L.A. Examiner, which was kind of known as the, the king of the yellow papers at the time. So they actually confiscated it by telling uh, Bernice and her parents that they were cops. They impersonated detectives, confiscated evidence in a major, you know, nationally publicized murder case. Um, they actually did it, and uh, the chief didn't get the, this correspondence uh, in San Diego for over a week. So I think it was 10 days uh, before he actually got his hands on it. So he didn't even know what all was in it. He had some of the other correspondence that they didn't, apparently they just confiscated like five pieces and left a, the rest of them there. But they didn't realize how important that correspondence was until later when they got their hands on it. So. Ah, oh, crazy. Yeah, really crazy. So basically, pivotal to the case against Dr. Jacobs, police had to prove that he was, in fact, the mysterious Mr. Johnson. Right. Uh, that's what it hinged upon. I mean, the, the chief was... At first, the chief wasn't convinced that he had actually murdered her just because of the the uh, ambiguousness of the, uh, you know, the manner of death, whether how exactly she died. But he knew that that he was the man that got her pregnant and was trying to arrange an abortion and clearly had a romantic relationship, uh, which he lied about. So he was, uh, especially after Clark was uh, let go the next day, he was very suspicious of Jacobs and tried to sweat it out of him. But he just said that he didn't get her pregnant. He didn't have anything to do with it. Last time he saw her was on Friday, not two days, Friday night, two days before she disappeared. 
but they also, amongst that correspondence, one of the things the chief had gave Jacobs even more of a motive. He already had a, a motive just being, the chief believed, the father. But she actually threatened him about 12 days before her death in a one-line telegram that basically said, if you don't straighten this out right now, you know, I'm going to come to San Diego and stop at nothing. Basically threatened to ruin his life. Just reveal the scandal is all she would have had to do. And this was another common motive for murder at the time. You know, man doesn't uh, do the right thing, as they said. And the woman has no real recourse. So she threatens to reveal the scandal if he doesn't uh, marry her or you know, in this case, uh, arrange an abortion. So it gave Jacobs had a had a lot of motive. There's no question about it. It was the strongest part of the case. But exactly how it went down was the problem they you know they they had with it, showing that he had the the means and the opportunity. You know, was he? They had to prove that he was the mysterious Mister Johnson, and that proved very problematic. So, right. They, they basically haul him to the Blue Sea Cottages, bring out Albert Kern to identify him. Right. And then Kern kind of hems and haws. Uh, well, kind of maybe he looks a little like him. Right. <laughs> and so their authorities are, are frustrated. Correct. Then they go to collect Mr. Johnson's signature from the guest register, hoping that the handwriting matches. Yeah, since uh, Kern couldn't identify him, and as time went on, it became very apparent, you know, Kern was this kind of uh, unassuming guy who got caught up in this thing, you know, and everything he said got recorded in the papers and published all over the country. You know, I think he found himself really uh, overwhelmed by this whole thing, and his story kept changing, and you know, after a while, it became clear you couldn't trust anything he said as far as what happened that night, particularly about what this guy looked like. But it turns out that his initial identification description of Mr. Johnson very closely matched Jacobs, and that's what the police thought. So, but they the only real you know physical evidence, if you want to call it that, that they had was this register signature. And, you know, back then, which is true even to this day, it's it's not an exact science, handwriting analysis. And they didn't really have any local experts at the time. Uh, you know, they had a number of people like bank tellers comparing the signatures to uh, to Jacob's checks, you know, and saying this is this is the guy's uncanny rep- resemblance and all this. But they weren't even experts at handwriting. And it wasn't until later where they actually found a, an expert, but uh, it was pretty clear that the the handwriting resembled Jacob's handwriting. We will return after these brief messages. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Back once more, let's return to the interview. So there is a grand jury investigation, correct? Um, yes. Done in secret. Yeah. Yeah. I think Jan, grand juries pretty much are, are secret. Um, they didn't, you know, really release anything after that, other than when the DA, uh, you know, handed down an indictment. But the, the grand jury went on for a couple of weeks, and you know, the police, the papers were reporters were camped out at the the courthouse in San Diego, trying to figure out what was going on. You know, most of the people who showed up as witnesses, you know, they would mention them in the press and say, you know, her. Fritzy's mothers came today and, you know, they would comment on what the, you know, the people looked like as they were coming and going. And previously, before the grand jury, this wasn't until February when the grand jury happened, but before that, before the chief had pretty much decided and the DA had decided on Jacobs, uh, there was a lot of rumors about Hollywood connections that Fritzy had. And she did have some Hollywood connections and had tried to break into Hollywood. Although the evidence on this is very sketchy, but 
you know, the papers talked a lot about the Hollywood angle and that the police were interviewing some movie stars and producers and directors up in L.A. And they did. They did interview a number of them. But previous to the grand jury, Jacobs had been released and the, the papers, the public just thought, well, you know, they're not going to charge Jacobs. It must be somebody else. So when the grand jury finished and the D.A. announced an indictment for first degree murder against Dr. Jacobs, everybody was pretty much stunned. So, uh, you know, because all the papers had been talking about was Hollywood, and that was just because that made good copy and they didn't have anything else. So, uh, but, you know, he ultimately was uh, indicted and went to trial in March. So the trial is a showdown of sorts between a kind of understaffed district attorney's office, right? Right. And some pretty decent lawyers hired by Dr. Jacobs. Yeah, the um, the DA's name was a guy named Chester Kempley. I love a lot of the names from this case. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a great name for a DA in the 1920s? This was his first major case. It, uh, Fritzy's body was discovered less than a week since he had taken over the job. And so he was very gung-ho and he was politically ambitious. So you know, this high profile case is something he really wanted to prosecute. And, you know, at the time, the corruption had been so bad that the newspapers and the public was, you know, angry at the police and at the mayor and, you know, uh, the government, basically, because the crime situation related to prohibition particularly was out of control. And there was all kind of corruption in the courts and whatnot. Well, so anyway, uh, he charged him with first-degree murder, and uh, it was a weak case except for uh, motive. And Jacobs, uh, he was not wealthy. He had a doctor's salary, uh, but he was still young. He was only 30, 31 years old, and uh, he wasn't making a big salary from the government, so he couldn't have afforded you know, a high-priced defense team. But apparently, he had a cousin who was a lawyer, back in Detroit, I guess. And he worked pro bono. And then apparently the family, the extended family pitched in to provide funds for his defense. And the head of a group of like five or six or seven lawyers, depending upon the uh, the stage of the case, um, was a guy named Shank. And he was known as one of the most colorful and probably the top defense attorneys in Southern California, he was from LA and he spent a lot of time involved with Hollywood cases. And uh, so he was well known. And so he was leading the defense team. And so he kind of set this thing up between a, you know, this kind of flamboyant uh, defense attorney and an ambitious DA, you know, and it was kind of portrayed that way. Um, and, it, and it was true. I mean, that's exactly what happened. So it was the most sensational trial in the city's history up to that point. Yeah, it's a very interesting trial. Um, a couple of the witnesses really shocked prosecutors. Albert Kern, in particular, <laughs> <laughs> the star witness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kern turned hostile really right. quickly. He, he didn't have, uh, Kimberly, the DA, didn't have any other eyewitnesses. Albert Kern was the only one that saw Mr. Johnson that night. 
So there was no one else who could identify him. And, you know, the only other thing he really had was circumstantial. You know, you could circumstantially say that Jacobs had met Fritzy that night. And even though he said he didn't and that that he had been up there with her at the Blue Sea Cottages, uh, there was plenty of circumstantial evidence, but there was nothing definitive. And the only other thing he really had was the handwriting expert that said that Jacobs did this and he tried to disguise his writing. But, you know, he needed a witness. And uh, Kern, basically, the trial, refused to say one way or the other. <laughs> it might be the guy and it might not be the guy. So you can imagine how that re- really didn't help the DA, but that's all he had. And then... The first trial he was um, was a hung jury, and they went to trial again. And in the second trial, out of the blue, while the DA was, uh, you know, examining uh, a direct examination of, uh, of of his witness, his star witness, uh, Albert Kern, Kern said, "No, I can say definitely it wasn't him." Now, out of the blue, I mean, it was really a a huge moment in the trial, and you could tell just by reading the transcripts that. Kimpley was completely flabbergasted, almost speechless. Just the way it came out in the, you know, in the trial testimony, you could tell how it went down. And then, you know, basically he he branded uh, Kern a, a hostile witness and then cross-examined him for the better part of two days, <laughs> trying to figure out why he had changed his mind. And now he was certain that it wasn't Dr. Dr. Jacobs and He implied uh, corruption among, you know, on the defense that they had bribed him or, you know, some other fashion, which was very common in the 1920s in San Diego, as it was in Chicago and L.A. and New York. You know, it was just the prohibition, the corruption at the time just kind of hung over everything. So it was certainly plausible. A lot of people assumed there was corruption on both sides and both sides were accused of it during the trial. And, um, you know, it was so common, uh, payoffs and that sort of thing, at least on a lower level, that people assumed it was happening, whether it was or not. Whatever happened in this case, is it's hard to say. Um, Kern claims that from the beginning, he had told the chief and the DA that Jacobs wasn't the guy, but they and their detectives kept hassling him and getting him to change his mind and you know, the reporters had interviewed him and he had gotten confused by all of this. And but now he was certain. So <laughs> kind of blew up the DA's case in the second trial. Yeah. And then to exact his revenge, Kern is arrested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right after that, like the next day, I think it was, uh, you know, this detective showed up and arrested Kern for um uh, a perjury. So <laughs> and he was arrested and thrown in jail and it took his wife a couple of days to uh, come up with, I don't remember if it was $3,000, three or $4,000 bail, which at the time would have been, you know, 15 times, you know, that amount now. So, uh, you know, just with inflation, three or $4,000 was huge money back then. So uh, that most people didn't have and the current certainly didn't have. So, yeah, that was just kind of a side thing. It didn't, I mean, other than the damage that Kern had already done to the DA's case, the the bottom line was is he still didn't have a strong case. Um, He couldn't prove definitively that Jacobs was there. There was 
plenty of reasonable doubt that he was the guy. And they couldn't even say for sure how he supposedly had killed her. She drowned, right? So, but they could never show other than that. And the defense uh, was intent upon proving suicide. So all of their expert medical testimony and that sort of thing was aimed at showing that it could have been something else. She drowned, but it could have also been all these other reasons why she died. You know, they gave like six or seven other reasons, you know, diagnosis that it could have been instead of drowning, which would have some of the same, you know, indications at autopsy. So there was massive uh, reasonable doubt just in the medical testimony and the uncertainty about what happened to her. So it remained a mystery and unsolved at the end. Yeah, the the defense basically tried to lock down Jacob's alibi. A lot of the witnesses they called in were in an attempt to prove that he wasn't there. He could not have done this to Fritzy. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the DA had, had plenty of circumstantial evidence showing that that Jacobs was heading to the train depot, the Santa Fe train depot, at the same exact time Fritzy was heading to the Santa Santa Fe depot. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that they met. Now, there was enough reasonable doubt there. And uh, like you said, the uh, defense attorney tried to have witnesses, you know, bolstering uh, his alibi. And saying that he had been at this restaurant, uh, ironically, the same restaurant that Rogers Clark had been in with his date on that night, the Golden Lion. And, you know, they got, you know, waitresses and the manager and different people who were there to testify that Jacobs had been there that night and therefore couldn't have been Mr. Johnson. And then the DA had plenty of people said that he was there on a different night. He was a it turns out he was a regular there. So, you know, people didn't, he was there so often, people didn't really notice comings and goings, you know, that worked there. He could have been any of, of any day, basically, because he was, he, he came in and out of there all the time. But the other thing was that, that, you know, that helped the DA's case and that had made the chief so suspicious from the beginning was, is that Jacobs kept changing his alibi. You know, I determined that by the end, he had given them four separate alibis. So, you know, that's pretty suspicious in most people's minds. But it's circumstantial. But you write that you believe that modern investigators would have easily solved the case, right? Yes. Um, Back then, they didn't secure crime scenes or potential crime scenes. You know, at first they didn't know this was a crime, but there were people wandering all over the beach while her body was there. You know, and not just the people who discovered her, a whole bunch of other people stopped and there was looky-loos out there, you know, because they'd found a body and people started wandering around and helping the cops search, you know, the beach. Uh, something that would, would never happen today, hopefully. And uh, they didn't document things. There was no photographs taken of the body, just was not evidence was not secured and systematically documented uh number one and that was true both on the beach and at the blue sea cottage once they discovered it there was actually a a well-known colorful kind of uh reporter from the san diego sun who actually searched the cottage at the same times the detectives searched it 
and he found one of the potential pieces of evidence and had his fingerprints all over it. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that kind of thing wouldn't happen now. But back then, they, the police and the reporters tended to have a little better uh, relationship. And, you know, they, the police would depend upon them to give them good press. And the Sun happened to be the newspaper that was most sympathetic to the police and the, the mayor at the time. And so they were given kind of favored treatment to go to crime scenes and things like that. So, so that was one reason. The other thing was, is, you know, a place like the blue sea cottages would have cameras, you know, they would be surveillance cameras that would show definitively whether Jacobs was there or not. You know, the autopsy would have been completely different. Uh, the blood wouldn't have been drained. You know, it would have been at the medical examiner's facilities and treated properly uh, and evidence documented. When, when the initial autopsy was done, the autopsy surgeon didn't even take samples, didn't take tissue samples, didn't take blood or urine samples, which might have shown some substance. They ended up doing a second autopsy for that reason. Uh, so there was all kind of, you know, this, the, the forensics weren't the same then. There was no DNA. They couldn't even type blood, you know. For hair and fiber analysis, you know, even the fact that they knew they had Mr. Johnson's tire tracks right alongside that cottage in the alley, right? They saw him a few days afterwards. They were still plainly visible. Well, these days they would take a cast of that, right? <laughs> and determine the tires, and try to match them against Jacobs and any other uh, uh, suspects. But they, that that was like 10 years off at that time. They hadn't developed any techniques to do that. So the forensics weren't there. The procedures weren't there. Uh, I think it would have been quickly solved. Plus, they would have been able to say de definitively whether Jacobs had, you know, when he got back to the hospital, you know, after this happened, when, whether he was at the Golden Lion or not, and several other places, the... Uh, they would have been able to see more than likely they would have caught him on camera meeting Fritzy at the Santa Fe Depot. So, yeah, I think it would have been quickly been solved. It wouldn't have even been a dif difficult case, at least as far as the fact that he was with her that night and knew more than he was saying. They may not have been able to determine exactly what happened. Right. Yeah. So you propose different theories on what might have happened to Fritzy Mann. And for me, one of the more intriguing ones is supported by Mr. Johnson's request for running water, a bathtub, and a possible multiple-day stay. And this suggested to some that Mr. Johnson, Dr. Jacobs, was the assumption, had taken her there with the intent to perform an abortion himself. That's why he needed the water. He didn't know how long her recovery might be. Yeah, that was one of the things I discovered that the uh, <clears throat> the jury and the public didn't know at the time was the fact that the DA believed that, and, they, and, and the police chief for that matter, they both believed that Jacobs intended to perform the abortion himself that night at the Blue Sea Cottage, as dangerous as that would have been. Um, he was a doctor. Some of the training he had had in the past, perhaps, and I think probably more than perhaps, would have given him the requisite knowledge to do it. 
uh, maybe not safely, who knows, you know, but, uh, and he had been trying to arrange an abortion for a couple of months and he never managed to do it, which is kind of interesting because obviously they happened all the time there. Um, and so that's another kind of one of the mysteries why they were never able to arrange this, but it, it was clear to the DA and to the police chief and to me that, uh, he was, in fact, intending to do an abortion that night. The real mystery to me is what happened after that, what actually happened to her. Right, yeah. And you propose the possibility that he could have etherized her in preparation for the abortion and then either just freaked out seeing her laying there over the whole situation and decided to kill her, or maybe he had believed he had killed her with the ether and then panicked and then disposed of her body. Right. I mean, I didn't just come up with this. The Once again, some of the, the information I was able to discover showed that the DA in particular, but also the police chief, believed that that's what happened. Um, and, you know, they had different ideas about maybe exactly how it went down. But the idea was is that he administered a, a, an anesthetic, whether it was ether or chloroform or, you know, there's several different things they could have used. And, uh, you know, and back then, it, those substances and the way it was done uh, with anesthesia was a lot more dangerous than it is now. So people died much more frequently just from the anesthesia. So... There was very good reasons for them to think that, you know, and plus the fact that he wasn't in a hospital. He was doing this by himself, you know, probably with like gauze and, you know, dripping, you know, ether or something onto this gauze mask, you know. So they thought maybe it killed her accidentally or maybe he thought she was dead and then he panicked um, or whatnot. The. D.A. finally determined, in his opinion, uh, that Jacobs drowned her in the bathtub and then put her body on the beach to make it look like suicide, which it almost was taken as suicide. And the fact that drowning is so hard to, to determine, it could be different things, uh, especially if she did drown in the bathtub, you know, maybe... He had her take a bath before this was going to happen or she was just going to relax or whatever. And then he drowned her in there. You know, there was that bruise over her eye and whatnot. And, and it, it's not for sure that she drowned, but it's it's pretty certain. And they actually showed testimony at the trial that she had drowned in fresh water, not salt water. So there was some evidence for it. Once again, not definitive and so I don't I don't try to take the case that I know that he purposely murdered her. I think it's it's possible. Uh, it's also possible, very possible that he killed her accidentally with the anesthetic. Um, it was very risky doing that. And it's clear to me that that's what was happening that night. And um, so, you know, the who, what, when and where and why is is pretty clear. Exactly how is this is still kind of a mystery and probably and certainly will remain so. Is this still a cold case uh, for the San Diego Police Department? Yeah, it's still listed as unsolved. 
And so, I mean, you can't, and this, you know, this book isn't going to change anything. You know, it's, uh, well, first of all, it's, you know, I'm not a policeman, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. But, uh, you know, it's not evidence that could be used anyway. Plus, Jacobs has been dead for over 60 years. So uh, nothing is going to be done with this, I'm sure, and shouldn't be. You know, it's not definitive, but uh, I'm I'm pretty sure in my mind what happened. I try to lay that out in the book, so logically. Right. Well, uh, glad you did. It's definitely a case that deserves to be well-known. I'm happy you wrote a book about it. So you're working on another book, a case that happened in Oregon this time. Well, that is one of them I'm looking at. I'm actually looking at two different cases. One of them is in Oregon. It's it's more obscure, although it, you know you can look it up online and it's there. And there's this really bizarre case um, that you know if you if you're interested in the Zodiac killer, this this uh, case comes up on some of those forums online because this guy. Uh, believed in uh, astrology and he was casting horoscopes and he was using this in a murderous scheme he had there in a small town in Oregon. Um, but I'm also looking at another one that's much better documented and it's in LA. I haven't seen where anybody's written a book on it. Uh, and it's, it's even weirder than that case. Uh, and I like the strange cases and <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. So I, I haven't decided yet. I'm still in the initial stages of of looking at these things. And, you know, something else may pop up too. You just got to make sure you can find enough information from a hundred years ago that, you know, you could actually piece together a story, which is, is a challenge. So. Yes. A big challenge. <laughs> Unless you want to make something up, which I won't do. Um, I like nonfiction to be nonfiction, but. Right. I, I do too. So you have a website. Uh, can, can you tell us what that is? It's pretty easy. It's James, James at jamesstewartauthor.com. It's all one. James. I'm sorry, that's my email. jamesstewartauthor.com. Just like my name. So, yeah. Well, perfect. Well, it, it's been great having you here. Thank you again for being a guest. Thank you very much, Eric. I really appreciate it. And I love your show. I've, I've listened to uh, all of them. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to James A. Stewart. His book is called Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage, a true story of murder in San Diego's jazz age. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.